Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. How you guys doing? (laughs) Are some of you stuck in a place of kind of blah? You ready for winter to be over? Is there a winter going on spiritually for you? Are you a little jaded, maybe, a little tired of things? I get into funks like that, and I want to just challenge you that if that's what you're going through, and it's become a habit to feel that way every time you walk in this building, that it doesn't have to be that way. It could end today. Are you sick of it? Are you sort of over that feeling and want to be free? That could happen for you today. And with that in mind, I'm going to pray for us before we get into the sermon. God, we acknowledge coming in here and writing ourselves to hear a sermon. For some of us, cynicism, doubt, and coldness have worn grooves into our heart. And we're so used to feeling this way. We've carried that in here, and yet we hate it. We don't enjoy feeling this way. So God, we pray that you would be mighty in this place, that you would give us supernaturally a yearning to be free and a decision to move forward. We don't claim to have the power to make that real, but we ask you for the faith to want it, and to declare it and to believe it. And we ask you to supply the power to make it happen. And today, through the power of your word and your presence, freedom can come and change can happen. We believe that with all our hearts. It's why we've come. We believe that you are alive and you have greater power than we do. So come and show yourself in this room. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Do me a favor, even if you don't smile the rest of the day, look up here and smile just one time at me. Because I got to look at you too, okay? I mean, you're all looking at me, but I got to look at all of you, and I see everything in the room. So would you just encourage me with one? That's, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to continue this morning on the series in Psalms. And you'll notice that I'm not going in any particular order. We went from 1 to 8 to 3. I'm going to 24. I don't know how this is going to end. We're just following the Lord, literally paycheck to paycheck at this point. We're seeing how it goes. This Sunday, God has given us Psalm 24. and That's what we're going to look at. And the title is Lift Up Your Heads. And if I could give it a subtitle, it's How to Prepare to Worship God. Maybe another way to say it is How to Get Ready to meet the living God. Let me read Psalm 24 for you. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. It's the word of God. And if you weren't familiar with that, it's also the words of a song, which is probably how most of us are familiar with especially verses 8 and 9 and 10. So it's a very familiar passage of Scripture. 
I want to begin by sharing that it's one of my lifelong dreams. Something that I hope God will permit me to do before I die is to walk the Camino de Santiago. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Camino. And most people who are familiar, they just call it the Camino. The Camino is a is the Spanish word for what, everyone? Way. That's one word. Street or way. And it's also another. It's a caminar is the verb for what? To walk. And boy, is it a walk. The Camino de Santiago is a walking pilgrimage. It has many, many routes. The longest one, probably one of the longest ones, is what they call the Camino Francais. It begins in this town, St. Jean Piedport, on the French side of the Pyrenees, east of the Pyrenees. And it's a, a walk of about 500 miles. But no matter how long the route or where it begins, the end of that journey is always the same place. It is this place, the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela. If you've been at church for a while, uh, in our church for a while, you'll recognize that town name. That's the town where Pastor Matt Swain, who used to be on our staff, lived for six years while he and his team ran a cafe as missionaries to this campus town. It's an old town in Galicia in, in, in northern Spain. I had the, the privilege of visiting this place when I went there to try to recruit Pastor Matt. To and He was getting ready to leave the mission field, so I didn't steal a missionary away from his work. But they were getting ready to, to close the cafe. And so on the way home from Africa, I swung by Spain and asked him to pray about coming to work for us. And God used that trip, and he came. So I had this, the joy of walking around this town and taking pictures of this place. And it's an amazing sight. And imagine seeing this at the end of a 500-mile walk. Every time I think about the Camino, I think of a story about our friend Chris Kim, who tried to walk home from U of I once. And I'm not going to tell you that story, but you can ask him someday. He loves to tell that story. It's his favorite thing in the world. What's the point of a pilgrimage that long? If I go, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think I have the time or the legs for the 500-mile version. I will probably start a little closer in. The 113-kilometer version is the one I would probably do. That takes still about a week to do that walk. So if you want to do the full one, you need about a month or a month and a half of your life devoted to this. Now, I want you to pause and think about that crazy concept. That you'd walk every day over mountains and through long fields for like 500 miles. Why? What's the point of a walking pilgrimage? Well, I think one of the biggest reasons for it is because modern life especially does not allow for the time or the pace for real reflection. But when you're walking for miles and miles and miles every day, and you're not on your phone, and you're too busy moving to stare at a screen, you're going to do a lot of thinking. And after a while, you're going to do a lot of talking, even to yourself. It's one of the reasons I want to do this walk so badly, is I feel so much in my heart right now that I need the space and the pace and the time to just be with myself and be with God. And many people who do the Camino um, for social and safety reasons don't do it alone. They go with a small group, and there's usually a little pacing, and you walk separately but also together, and then you come together at the end of the day, and you share some of your reflections and what you saw along the way. I'm sharing this because partly I want to share with you right now. I, I long to do this. So if you see me leave and disappear for a week, I might be there one of these days. Okay? If, you want to, if, if this sounds like something you want to do alone together, let me know. Maybe we'll go together. Who knows? But I also share it because the psalm that we just read, one of the likely uses of that psalm was by pilgrims because you know that the Jews were required on an annual basis to make a journey into Jerusalem you could worship God locally, but really it was important that at least once a year, at least the head of the household would come to Jerusalem and worship in the temple there. And a lot happened during that visit. So you can imagine when you're doing this on foot, that you had a long walk. And as that pilgrim 
walking that long journey, made the final approach to Jerusalem, saw the temple on the mount in the distance, this psalm was meant to be a reflection and a prompt to think about the readiness of your heart to finish that journey by worshiping in God's house. I want to look at this psalm and ask the question, how do you prepare to enter God's presence? How do you prepare yourself for an encounter with the living God? And I'll begin with the observation that all space is God's space. Let me ask you that question again. How did you get ready for church this morning? What about quiet time? Do people still have quiet time? You almost never hear about people having quiet time anymore. It's almost like we're people who have this huge meal once a week and then don't really nibble for the rest of the week. That daily time with God is as important, perhaps arguably more important than this time with God. I won't pit them against each other, but boy, if this is the only time we worship God, there's a reason there's a malnutrition of the soul, right? And so whether it's your personal worship alone in your home or your worship together with us in this building, has it occurred to you that it might require preparation? Because I I, I don't always think that way myself. Now, I know you washed your body, you cleaned your mouth, probably did your hair and picked out an outfit. So there's some of that getting ready. But what about the other dimensions of preparedness? How did you get ready for this coming here today? Maybe another way to ask it is, as you're pulling into this familiar parking lot, what was going through your mind about what's supposed to happen here this morning? Now, I'm going to guess, not because I'm cynical, but because sometimes it's my experience that not a lot is going through your mind. For me, sometimes what's going through my mind are the logistical things that I'm responsible for. And it's so easy to forget what it is I'm coming here to do, and who it is that I'm coming here to meet. You know, Psalm 24 begins with this really bold statement, but not just a bold statement, kind of a a weird statement. Why, Why do you begin a psalm preparing people for worship with this particular statement? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We just sang that song today with this line. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Why does he begin there? When I was in high school, I used to throw these epic parties. You know, it was like Project X minus the rampant immorality. It was massive, like 100, 120 kids would show up at my house We'd have a DJ and lights, and the basement would just be rocking, and it was a lot of fun. So many kids came that most of them didn't know who lived there, why they were there. They're just there because somebody told them a party's happening. And the one rule was you stay on the first floor of the basement. You don't go upstairs. Well, one year, I saw a bunch of kids lingering outside of my bedroom door. So I'm like, what's up with that? So I walked upstairs, and as I'm approaching, two of the guys Stop me like this, like, hold on. I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> you don't hush me. You don't stop me in my own house. You're in my room. I need to get in there. And they're like, you can't go in there right now. I say, I can go anywhere I want. Do you know why? Because it's my house, fool. You don't even know who lives here. You're trying to stop me. This is my home, and there's no place I cannot legitimately go because it's all mine. You know who can't go in there is you. Get out. And I asked them to leave. <laughs> I regretted it because I found out who these guys were later. They were armed. They were dangerous guys. <laughs> I should have done a little homework. That's a whole different story for another day. But um, I was glad I survived that encounter. I shared because there's this idea that when you own it, access is expected. And he, what he says is, this place that we call our world, it all belongs to God. Not because he won it or he earned it or he conquered it, but because he made it. That's probably the deepest kind of ownership there is. Artists understand this. Because artists 
own the work, not just the paper and the ink and the materials, but the work itself is theirs. You can sell it for a million dollars or more if you're lucky, but all that money comes to you because it's yours by virtue of creation. You have rights to it inherently because it came from your hands. Why is this an important idea for people preparing to worship? I mean, it's an important idea for sure, but why is that the first thought we should have when we're getting ready to worship God, whether together or on our own? I think it's because life in this world has a way of shrinking our field of view, doesn't it? I thought about if I were to go on the Camino and if I did the 500-mile version, I would wager that 498 miles of that journey, I would be thinking about myself. I'm almost sure that would happen. I think about all my relationships, my experiences, my memories, my burdens, my, you know, my plans, all of it. So much of that reflection on that walk would be about me. And then interspersed in there, I think I would see the mountains in the distance and I'd go, oh, God's huge. What about me, though? <laughs> I, I think that's just how life works. We dwell on ourselves in such a way that while it's legitimate, our world is our world, in a way, the whole world shrinks into our world. Doesn't that happen all the time? That's why sometimes on days like 9-11 where something jarring happens, it's as if the outside world comes crashing into your world and all the stuff that seems so important, huge, defining drama, suddenly gets swept right off the table like some scene in a movie and you go, nothing else matters right now. I don't live in this little tiny snow globe of drama. I live in a bigger world and that bigger world roared and made itself known to me. But the natural course of life is that every day, that tiny little snow globe starts to feel like the whole world. I'm not saying that your affairs and dramas and burdens are not important. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think God would ever say that. But they are not the full world that we live in. And so God begins by saying, when you come to meet with me or worship me, begin at this place. Zoom out and recognize that there is no space in the universe I don't own to which I don't have access. I never go anywhere as an invader, but it's all mine, including every living creature who lives in that world. When I want to enter your life, God says, I have a legitimate right to enter that life, and it's good for you when I do. And when I enter your life, make sure that you have the right frame of reference, the right point of view. What I'm really trying to say, I think, is this. God is not a character in the story of our lives. Imagine at the end of your life, there's a there's credits roll. <laughs> I always think of everything in terms of movies. I don't know why I've been like that since I was a kid. And I picture at my funeral, they're going to roll credits at the end Is God going to be one of the supporting actors? There was this guy named God who had a really big part in Dave's life. He defined what Dave did for a living. He said his name like a thousand times a year. No, I don't think so. But that's the way it feels a lot of the time, doesn't it? This is one of those things where it's really easy to think you got it right and really hard to get it right honestly. Here's the central question. Does God live in your world, or do you live in God's world? It's amazing how often, when I pray, the mindset is this. God, this is my whole world. Would you come in here, please? Would you come in here and look at this, do this, help me with this? As if the world is my life, and I'm inviting God to play a role. You get speaking parts today, God. Would you come on in here and do something here? But the right perspective is not that God enters my world and is a character in my story, but that I am spending my life trying to locate myself in God's story. 
It's hard to talk like that without people getting upset saying, what you mean I don't matter? Of course you matter. You mattered enough that part of God's story is that he sent his son to die for you. He does not have to do much more to prove you matter. But you don't matter supremely. We cannot make sense of the universe and reality and life by beginning with us at the center and saying, how does all this make sense to me? The reason some of us are spiraling in confusion is because we've placed the wrong person at the center and are trying to make sense of everything. Why does life feel like this? How come nothing makes sense? It's because your center is completely off. God is not entering our story, but we are entering his. And when that makes sense to us, we can begin properly to worship. That I don't worship a God who's just a resource to do the things I need done. But in fact, I am a being in a world he has made and an actor in a story he's been writing for a very long time. A story that's the only story that really matters in the entire span of history. And I will finally make sense of my life when I enter that story and locate my place in it. I was having a conversation earlier this week about how missions has changed and how today, you know, it's funny how we talk about three months as long-term missions. <laughs> um, we used to call that an appetizer or a, a, a little taste. And people used to go to the mission field with all of the, they didn't even use suitcases. They actually packed all their earthly goods in their coffin as a symbol that I intend to be buried there. God's called me for life. You know, people don't get to that place just because they're nutso. They get to that place because they finally understood their life against the backdrop of God's great story. And they now know where they fit in. So before we can encounter God, the first level of preparation is to understand who this God is that we're about to encounter. I believe that we have too small a view of God on a regular basis. And that's one of the reasons worship is not a compelling experience for us. Having prepared our minds for who this God is, and by the way, if you are an ancient Jewish pilgrim, the sight of Jerusalem and its walls and the Temple Mount and this incredible building, that sight alone would have helped with the right view of who God is. Now, I have a little issue with the cost and the motives for which those ancient cathedrals of Europe were built. But I can tell you one thing they got right is there's no other building in town that looks like the church in the old world. And if you've ever had the privilege of being inside one of these buildings, I, I remember going to Westminster Abbey and just standing on the outside, you just, you're awestruck and you think, who would live in a place like this? I look at architecture, look at where we worship. I like it. I'm glad Jesus is here, but this is a high school cafeteria, y'all. When I'm here, I think of bad pizza. It's my knee-jerk association with rooms like this. Something that the, the old world Europeans did get right is the theology of physical space. The impact that architecture has on our view of who is, who is living there or what the purpose of this building is. I don't think we have the money or the motive to build such a structure. But when I see Notre Dame or places like that, my mind immediately thinks what grand effort was put into this, to whom all of that was devoted. The temple in Jerusalem would have had exactly that kind of effect. I remember preaching years ago that um, it, it took seven and a half years, like 125,000 laborers and artisans. They spent about the equivalent today of $250 billion in materials to build Solomon's temple. In Jerusalem. It was a mega, 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 mega everything. Entire rooms overlaid with gold, floor to ceiling. And not just rooms, like rooms that were 30 feet high. So you can imagine seeing that in the distance, it immediately takes your reverie out of your own life and says, Who is this God I'm about to meet? And then the immediate next question is, if that is the God I'm about to meet, who am I? I was out of town once on some ministry. I was going to do some work at a camp. So, you know, when you're going to a camp for a week, 
you bring jeans and good walking shoes and lumberjack shirts. Um, and I just, on a whim, I had a couple extra hours one evening before the thing started, so I called a friend who lived there. I said, what's up? He goes, oh, I'm having a little gathering. You've got to come. You know, when someone says little gathering, you're picturing like chilies or Applebee's and you're going to get so He gives me an address. I pull up and it's this fancy place. And I see all these fancy looking people getting out of these fancy looking cars. And I was wearing camp clothing. And immediately I was so aware of how I, at the whole drive there, I'm thinking, the whole time I'm thinking, I wonder what I'm going to think of this guy's friends. I'm preparing to have an opinion about or cast judgment on others. I wonder how I'm going to like the friends. I wonder what it's going to be like. I wonder if the food's going to be any good. As I'm pulling up and I see the fanciness of everyone else, my thoughts immediately turned inward. I'm like, I wonder what they're going to think of me. <laughs> I wonder if I'm ready for this. I wonder if I'm going to fit in. I think that's the right first question. Right? Right after we establish who is God, who am I that I can enter the presence of such a God? What kind of person, what kind of qualifications should exist for the person who can boldly stand in front of God and face him? And as the pilgrim begins preparation to enter God's space, he asks the question of himself. And the psalm responds very simply, What it takes is clean hands and a pure heart. Now, this is where I can fall under God's judgment or I can encourage you. There's so many places you can go with that. I grew up in a church tradition that went, in some ways, very wrong with that. I was taught that you have to have really, really clean hands and a really, really pure heart or God does not want to see your face. And at some level, that is theologically true. God does not delight in or permit evil and dirtiness in his presence. But I was taught that that depended entirely on me. And so I would spend some time thinking about all the crud I'd done that week before coming to church. And at some level, that's an important thing to do, though, because He's not lying when the psalmist writes that the kind of person who can ascend to God and stand in front of him must have clean hands and a pure heart. It's important that both things are mentioned because God's not interested in good deeds or good motives. He wants both. And do you understand that it's possible to have one or the other? I know some people who wish so many good things and do none of them. And I know some people who do all the right things and have dead hearts. God wants both, and here's the truth. There's not one person who has ever attempted to worship God who didn't fall short on both counts, amen? If you actually think you came to church this morning with clean hands and a pure heart, oh, I can't wait. Oh, it's been a good week. You got to check yourself before you what? (laughs) Before you wreck yourself. But even the Jew in the Old Testament approaching Jerusalem knew this. He was very aware of how he'd fallen short in his hands and in his heart. But he knew that in that temple, the first thing that would happen is he would repent. She would repent of that shortcoming, kill an animal, shed its blood, and through that sacrifice, they would receive atonement. To cover over their guilt. So even in the Old Testament, we would enter worship aware that we didn't deserve to be there, and God Himself would give us forgiveness so we could stand. Even though an animal had to die, righteousness, even in the Old Testament, didn't come from the stuff we did, it came from the mercy of God in response to something. He would look at the posture of our hearts and He would give us freedom all on his own. But we also know that in the era after Jesus, we who follow Jesus Christ, he's made it much simpler for us to enter the presence of God. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, 
He entered the most holy place once for all time. And he secured our redemption forever. Aren't you so glad that you don't have to bring animals to church? Because I can tell you, I'm so glad that my job doesn't involve slitting animals' throats, quartering them, burning parts of it, and eating all that meat every week as the priest. Thank God, because I'm, I'm borderline vegan nowadays, so I don't know. I'd have to leave this calling if that was the case. And I don't particularly enjoy sprinkling blood around, okay? So you notice that we don't have to do that because that was the way sins were atoned for before. But now the sacrifice of animals is not necessary because Jesus was the greatest ultimate sacrifice and once and for all time, that sacrifice satisfied God and purchased for us a standing, long-lasting, eternal redemption. It's not something we have to do again and again and again. But here's what we do have to do in response to that is every time we enter God's presence, we, we leave at the door any sense that we deserve to be there, that we've earned the right to be there, that we are somehow better than other people or have done things more rightly than other people. Self-righteousness is one of the greatest barriers to spiritual growth I've seen in the church in all the years I've served as a pastor. And here's the great tragedy of self-righteousness, and I'm talking about even when you are right. Self-righteousness is almost worse when you are right. Because self-righteousness, whether you're right or wrong, robs you of God's righteousness. It makes you actually start to believe your place is to lecture other people, to look down your nose and say, why can't you get it right? Forgetting that you're getting it right ever is a complete accident of grace. It's God empowering you, not you being a good person. Self-righteousness robs you of the righteousness of God. So... Though Jesus made a sacrifice once for all time, our part every week is simply this. Every day when we kneel for devotions is, God, I will not pretend like I brought into this setting my track record of moral uprightness. But I trust again fully. I transfer trust and confidence to what you've done for me. I I lay no claim to my right to stand here with you. And I ask you to cover me once again with that great forgiveness which is for all time made possible by Jesus. Now having said that, it's easy to make the mistake that post-Jesus, it's a free-for-all. If it's that easy to get clean, let's party! And many people have tried to build a kind of Christianity that practices that. If all you got to say, I mean, can you imagine when you had to bring an animal and the worse your sin, like the bigger the animal, you're like, oh, gosh, this is a very inconvenient way to know God. And then you find out what some dude, a carpenter's son, died once for all and God's happy with that. You could just walk in and just be like, hey, God, that's awesome. If it's that easy. I mean, I always think about this for some reason when I think about this this redemption is I hear I hear. Stories from older women saying, when we had babies, we used cloth diapers. Can you imagine that era? Every time your baby soiled the diaper, you got to clean that in like a sink or a basin and reuse it. Ugh. So in the era of disposable diapers, just think about how different your mindset is about that. And so when it's more convenient, when it's simpler and easier, it cheapens the whole thing in some way. When they see modern women growing about, oh, I have to change another diaper, like, shut up. Y'all don't even know. So when we hear how much easier and simpler it is, at least for us, there's a common error of cheapening that incredible grace. Here's the way I would picture it. We're like walking on the edge of a narrow ridge line with a sharp drop off on either side. And on the one side is total legalism, where we're so afraid of doing wrong things because our doing right things is how God accepts us. That's legalism. And a sharp drop off on the other side is what we call lawlessness, because God accepts us 
through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what we do. All I got to do is close my eyes and say a prayer and feel real bad for five minutes and everything will be made well again. And because it's so easy, we just keep, you know what? I know it's wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to do it. And then an hour later, I'm just going to say, God, my bad. Sorry about that. And we're just going to keep going. And so the twin errors are that everything I do matters supremely or everything I do doesn't matter at all. Do you see why those are two errors that are so easy for the Christian to slip into? Here's the right place down the middle of the ridgeline. It's what I would call lordship. It's recognizing that I can be a follower of Jesus because he permits it. He gave me the ability to call myself a child of God. But I also recognize that because he did that, what I do and how I live my life matters to him. I no longer live rightly as the ticket or the price of admission to enter God's presence. I do it as a tribute of honor to him. I do it as the expression of this newness of life that happened in me. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, described this whole Thought process. Look how he says it. Speaking about the free-flowing grace of Jesus, he says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. He wouldn't ask it hypothetically as people try to create that kind of Christianity. Hey, it's easy. Let's keep sinning because it's so fun to sin, have your cake, and eat it too. He says, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may what? Live new lives. So as we prepare to enter God's presence We're mindful that we can only enter because he did something marvelous for us. But it also is important that we reflect not just on the righteousness which Christ gave to us, but on the righteousness which we gave to Christ in tribute. An expression, an overflow of recognition, of thankfulness that he did so much for me, I will be careful how I walk. And I think this is an important message for today because the pendulum always swings from one extreme to the other. I grew up in an era where the pendulum had swung so far that it's all up to me. That was the weight I had to cast off through the gospel. I was so tired of people telling me that my conduct determined everything about how God treated me. No. I'm free from the gospel. That pendulum needed to swing back this way, but now it's gone all the way over here. Porn schmorn is just a little thing that you do. I think we're now in a place where everyone is so sloppy, we stopped caring about how we live. I don't want to get on a soapbox, but you know what I'm saying. is I don't want to get to that legalistic carefulness of my childhood. But I'm getting weary of the lawlessness in my heart and in our culture. As if God doesn't care what we look like or smell like when we come into his presence. What Paul says is this is the proof that the newness of life took place in you. Is that there is a genuine desire to give him the tribute of righteousness so far as you can render it. That you know that the way you live your life matters to God. It doesn't determine anything about your eternal destiny or even your standing with him but it delights his heart to see the newness of life blossom like a flower in your hands and in your heart. I'm tired of Christians using profane cursing all the time, freely saying it's just syllables. Well, then all words don't matter. I'm tired of people calling pornography art or a pastime or a victimless hobby. Today, I think more than ever, it matters that we have a renewal of our commitment to respond to a holy God with our best effort to honor him with a holy life. That matters still. 
It has always mattered. And it should matter to us more than to anyone else. So as we prepare to enter God's space, eyes are on us and what we're wearing and how we look. And we remember that he's the one who washes us. But we also want to carry in there with us a gift of tribute that says, I see you and I honor you. Let me end with this. When we've entered then, in proper preparation, God enters our space. He crashes into our world in some real way. And when he comes, he brings some wonderful things. Verse 5 reminds us that he brings blessing with him. There's so many ways you can interpret that. I don't want to talk about material blessings or changes in situation. I think the greatest blessing which God gives us ever is his acceptance and his affection. I love the benediction given to us in number six. I think this is the kind of blessing we should always have in mind when we hear this word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Do you remember earlier the psalmist said, this is the way it will be for those who seek the face of God. Have you noticed that when you're doing bad things, when you were a teenager, you were doing bad things, the last thing you wanted to see was the face of your father. Close the door, turn off the lights. You do everything away from the face of your father. But when you're on the basketball court in the varsity game, you score the last points. What's the first thing you look for? The face of your father. Dad, you see? You proud of me? Did you see that? And when your father is staring at his phone, you're like, doggone it. But when he's looking at you, he's like, yes, that's my boy. You beam. Your heart rises. That is the ultimate blessing, is the affection and affirmation and acceptance of a father's love for you. I don't care what else he gave me or didn't give me. If he would look at me in that moment and I would feel how much he loves me and adores me, that would be enough forever. That's the blessing that comes to us when we worship truly. As he looks at you and says, I don't care what anyone else thinks of you, I love you a lot. And all those things you did in secret, those little bits of endurance and sacrifice no one else saw, no one else has given you credit, I see, and I delight in you. You know, the truly watchful person, when you're playing, I always think of basketball because I play every week, and when you make that ultimate little pass and someone else does a spectacular layup, everyone cheers for the guy who made the layup, but the true ballers know that was a great pass. That's what you live for. It's like, I'm, that assist is, that's, those are my two points. That fool, all he did is, <laughs> I'm the one who's like, here. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? And the Father in heaven sees those little moves, those things that no one else recognizes. The times you held your tongue or made a sacrifice. He also brings vindication. How many times have you gone to God because you were being treated wrongly or unfairly? And no one else will listen to you. They'll listen for a while, but after a while, they roll their eyes. They're like, shut up already. We're over it. But you're not over it. I'm not over it. And so we're like, who's going to listen to me now? Because I'm tired of this. And who do you go to? Well, God said, you come to me. If you worship me truly, I will give you vindication. And here's how it works. If you are in the wrong... God will lovingly tell you, you're wrong and others are right. Please see that. And he will let you see it in the safest possible way. But if you are in the right and you're innocent, then the greatest gift right there in that moment is God says, you don't have anything to worry about. You've honored me thus far. You've been against everyone and you have conducted yourself in a way that pleases me. I see you. And you are righteous before me. Do you know how good it feels to be vindicated? To be told that you did it right? Especially when everyone else is like casting doubt on you. Do you know that God is the only one who will perfectly bring vindication and justice into your life? 
You guys know this, right? Because it's been so frustrating at times when you're trying to make a case and everyone else is trying to lecture you or counter you or debate with you. And you're like, no, but you got to know I'm right on this. And when God says, yes, you are right, you're like, see, shut up, everyone. God just told me I'm okay. And that vindication is like a treasure. God brings that for us. And when he doesn't, that means he wants to correct us. What a gift. Let me give you a last thing before we close our service. Sometimes we come to worship God in a state where we feel so powerless. And the stuff that has to happen in our lives, we can't make happen. We just don't have it. And so we see in this final image, in the closing of the psalm, a picture of God entering the city through gates swung open. This is metaphorical because none of the ancient gates swung up. Okay, they swung out. But the idea is this. It's the picture of a king, triumphant in war, returning to his capital city to the applause of his people. Usually leading in front of him a train of captives and all the spoils of war. That's the picture which God wants you to have of him when you're very aware of your powerlessness. I'm so glad we've come to a place in our culture where people can admit and own their powerlessness and brokenness. I grew up in an era where if you had any issue, no matter how great, people would just say, suck it up and try harder. Change your attitude as if it was that simple. Many things in life don't go away that easily, do they? But we got to be careful of the other mistake is to say we own our brokenness so much that we forgot how great God is. That even though your own body, your own mind, your own family has betrayed you, it's not a violation to tell someone God is able. It's a violation to say you are able. Don't tell me I'm able. I would have tried. I would have done it if I could do it. But it is not a violation. It is a blessing to say to someone, You can't, you won't, but God can. Because the God we worship isn't a God who is cowed by the things stacked against us. He is the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in what? In battle. That's the God who fights for you, not against you. It is not foolishness to pray with hope that God will do what you cannot. That he will do what has decidedly become impossible for you. And I wish that we can pray more this way and worship more this way. Because I'm so glad we can embrace our frailty but we're dangerously close as a culture to worshiping that frailty. Guarding it, preserving it, saying that's the only thing true of me is I'm powerless here. Oh yes, that's true. But there's a great truth about you and that is that the God you follow is mighty. There's nothing he cannot do. Remember that kid song we used to sing? My God is so great, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. The entrance of God into our world is so significant that even the inanimate gates and doors are commanded to look up and lift up their heads. That's why the title of the message is Lift Up Our Heads. It means to look up, stop looking down and in. Look up. See the God who does things that we cannot. And you know, because we say chin up, don't we? That the lifting of the head is a metaphor for hope and joy and encouragement coming back into our hearts. Maybe it's been a while since you felt those things, but you know that's what you want more than anything. You may come across as jaded and cynical and defeated, but in your heart there is still the yearning for more and better. It cannot come from other people. It cannot come from deep within. But my God and your God is able.
Will you cry out to him and ask him to be the lifter of your head? Let's take a moment. You know, our experience in worship hinges on what we think of God. So let's prepare each time we sit down with God to think about Him rightly. To think about ourselves rightly. And then to expect that when we enter God's presence, the gifts He brings can be ours too. We don't have to be resigned to helplessness. God is our helper. Let's take a moment. I don't know where this message finds you or leaves you. But right now, in this moment, at the end of a sermon, there are always two voices competing for your heart. There is the voice of God who says to you, Receive the words of life. And there's a voice of the enemy that says, those are lies. Where do they get off? The enemy wants you to reject God's words. And God wants you to receive them. Pay heed to which voice you listen to right now. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.